The dark and macabre have intrigued us for years, but are their bewitching powers waning? The old greats such as Poe, Lovecraft, and Hitchcock have long since passed into the void. The masters of the 1970s like James Herbert and George Romero are gone. Stephen King and John Carpenter are in their twilight years. So where does that leave the current state of horror? The future is bright and author Thomas Gloom hopes to unveil this truth by discussing the genre's past and present. Settle back, get comfortable, and remember to leave a light on as you enter into the gloom. There are plenty of legendary horror authors that stretch across the landscape of literary history. But over the last few decades, one name has reigned supreme as being synonymous with the genre. I'm speaking, of course, about Stephen King. Whether it's the bloodbath that is Carrie, the ultimate ghost story that is The Shining, or the tension-filled thrill ride that is Misery, King has managed to capture our greatest fears and make us pull out our wallets to experience them on an intimate level. He's managed to conjure up horrifying villains in the form of a clown, a rabid dog, a zombie child, kinky bondage, contagious viruses, and even cornfields. He made us cry in the Green Mile, laugh in the body, hold our breath in Cujo, and lose sleep because of it. On today's episode of the Into the Gloom podcast, we celebrate all things Stephen King. I'll be interviewing my spooky friend and fellow horror author, Calvin Ellis. Join us, dear listeners, as we discuss the man that has inspired an entire generation of horror fans. Welcome, Calvin. How are you doing today? Uh, I am fantastic. What a great intro. Great intro. I got goosebumps just, uh, just listening to you talk about Stephen King, so... Awesome. I'm, I'm so excited about this. You know, when I, when I started putting this podcast together and I, I reached out to, you know, a handful of people that I know in the indie horror community, you know, I, I gave you all the opportunity to choose the topic. And so when you chose this topic, I, I, I circled it, you know, on my calendar and was looking ahead. I was like, okay, I'm ready for this deep dive. I just last week, I was on vacation and I got to listen to the King cast where Jamie Stewart was on there. Yes. And he just, so good. Oh, he does. Right. While in. listening to that, while listening to that, I was like, am I the right person to talk about Stephen King or should it be Jamie? Because, wow, uh, amazing podcast. Yeah. Well, I felt the same way. So uh, we're, <laughs> we're in that, in that boat together. But yeah, so let's just, let's just dive right into this from the start. And I want to ask you, what was your introduction to Stephen King? Oh, the introduction to Stephen King. So um, it's going to get a little dark because I think the backstory for why this was my introduction is important. Um, So when I was four years old, uh, we were homeless and lived in central city, which is now a gambling town up in the mountains. But before it was not a gambling town, it's just like a small defunct mining town. And um, my younger brother and I were playing outside and he fell in the river and drowned right in front of me. Uh, I tried to save him and I couldn't. So after that, we kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, 
ended up in foster care, ended up having to stay uh, somewhere in Florida. But there was this small section where we stayed with this family um, here in Colorado. And I was still four years old. And my older brother thought it would be really funny to lock me in a room and put on the movie Children of the Corn to try to terrify me. Uh, my older brother blamed me for my brother's death. So I, I don't know if this was punishment for that or what, but he locked me in this room and made me watch Children of the Corn and uh, came back a couple hours later, expecting me to just be like hiding under the bed or something. But when he walked in, I said, can we watch it again? Uh, because at four years old, something about Children of the Corn, I loved the, the, I loved the idea of horror that could be controlled. Like I could push pause, I could turn away from it. You know, uh, and after dealing with this real horror of watching my brother drown, I knew that this was a thing that couldn't hurt me. The thing on the TV was not capable of causing actual damage, trauma perhaps, but not like physical damage. Uh, and so that was my introduction to Stephen King is the movie Children of the Corn. Um, we fast forward a few years later and uh, my parents owned a video store and I would see the, you know, tapes and stuff up on the shelf of Children of the Corn. And so I kind of became obsessed with watching that particular movie a lot. Uh, and then next door was a used bookstore. And I went over to the used bookstore one day and I saw a book sitting on a shelf and I said, hey, that's the guy that makes those movies. And Brock, the owner of the bookstore said, no, that's the guy that writes the books that they base the movies on. And the book was it. And it had just, I think it had recently come out uh, and this was a, a used copy that he had just gotten. And I said, uh, can, I, can I read it? And he was like, you won't, you won't understand. I was maybe nine or 10 years old. He said, if you can get your mom's permission, you can read it, but you can't, it can't leave the store because if somebody wants to buy it, I'm going to sell it. And so I spent the probably the next six or eight months laying underneath this A-frame shelf in this old used bookstore, reading it. And there are big parts of it I didn't understand, but I fell in love with it. Like I fell in love with horror. I fell in love with writing and I fell in love with Stephen King all at the same time because his book starts out with um i mean there's a couple of different starts to it but when bill you know sends his brother off to die basically uh spoiler alert if you haven't read it uh i mean obviously you have but if the listeners haven't spoiler alert georgie dies at the beginning um i i connected with bill on just like a deep level in that book because my brother had died and i couldn't save him uh and Georgie and Bill had a similar relationship. You know, he died and there was nothing Bill could do. And Bill spent the rest of his life uh, carrying that, that pain. So I connected with Bill on a really deep level. <clears throat> and a lot of my personality as, uh, as a young man and a, a, a child was based off of trying to be Bill Denborough, be the, the kid that everybody wanted to be, you know, that everybody looked up to, the leader, the dependable one. And so I kind of built that and Bev Marsh was my first crush. Like that just, that book kind of consumed me. And that was, so from the movie, to, the movies to the books, like Stephen King has just always been a, just a massive influence in my life. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. Thanks for, for sharing all that. And, and yeah, the, the, it, it, it's interesting that your introduction to King was a movie um, which I, I think for a lot of people, if we're honest, whether it was seeing a commercial or seeing a, a VHS cover, mm -hmm. uh, I think that a lot of people, you know, probably our age and, and younger, um, first interacted with a TV or film adaption of right. King, uh, yeah. before a book. Yeah, whether but, it was sitting on the floor, you know, while your parents watched the, you know, the uh, It when it aired on the, the two part special on TV. 
Like I know a lot of people that that was their introduction to them, but he's just such a huge part of the zeitgeist that it's almost impossible not to know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. For me, my introduction to King was the preview trailer for the, uh, the made for TV movie of the Tommyknockers, yeah. which I don't like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't care for that adaption. I don't it's think not, it's scary, it's but the trailer is terrifying. Yes. Even just like last year, I, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to go look this up, you know, on, on YouTube and see yep. if, if that trailer holds up, but it's horrifying. And I remember having nightmares that night and just freaking out about it. Um, but for me, I've talked about this before. My introduction to reading King was finding a used copy of Cujo at a thrift store when I was 14. And uh, so I, I read that, you know, just like you were saying, there were there were bits and pieces I didn't even understand at that age, but I, I loved it and it got my heart rate up and it just sucked me in. Um, but it's interesting, two things, the fact that you were able to read it over that many months without somebody buying it um, is sort of a testament of the universe <laughs> deciding that you yes. needed to be able to finish that book. I so think. the reason it took me like it, it was probably six or eight months. The reason it took so long is because people kept buying the copies. And mm. so I would have to remember where I was, gotcha. write it down on, he had a little note card that had my, um, my credits on it. He would, you know, give me $25 uh, for Christmas and put it on this little note card and say, you know, and so then he would write the page number that I was at on whatever book I was reading. And then he would just give me like free books. Like, uh, all my Calvin and Hobbes books came from him, mad magazine books, uh, Garfield, but the Stephen King books, he would, he would just, we well, can't take it, but you can, and he'd write down the number. And so then when a new copy would come in, he'd let me, he'd just go over and let my mom know at the video store, you know, when he comes in, tell him I've got it. And so I would go and I'd sit and read it. And then when I finished it, he actually gave me a copy which was, I still have the copy wow. um, somewhere, That's awesome. hopefully it's in a box, one of these boxes, I would assume. Um, yeah, but uh, it, it, I, it, I would go probably a week or two sometimes without being able to read it because somebody had bought the copy that I was reading. Mm. Okay. Okay. So that, that, that gives a little more insight because <laughs> yeah. that's what I was like, how did no one buy it over that length of yeah. time? It got, it got purchased quite a few times. Luckily <laughs> back then, uh, independent bookstores were all the rage. And so people were constantly coming in and, yeah. you know, Stephen King was really on a, you know, a meteoric rise, um, at the time. And so there was a lot of King books going around then. So, uh, yeah, and years later I would find out my mom owned the book and I, I found out you know years later that she was a Stephen King fan and had the book and I could have just taken from her but I didn't know that then so yeah. no you needed that experience that you had yeah. <laughs> yeah and I just um just this morning actually I listened to the last few chapters of the audiobook for your novel in the hills above the gristmill and we'll talk about that here right. in a little bit but I I loved at the end the about the author that you had mentioned that, that you grew up loving to read Calvin and Hobbes, Mad mm -hmm. Magazine, and Stephen King. And I resonate with that because all three of them were also huge uh, for me. I first read Calvin and Hobbes. I've, I found out about Calvin and Hobbes at a, um, a book fair in third grade. That's when nice. I got my first copy. Perfect and I still have Calvin. that copy. Awesome. And then I was reading, yeah, I was reading Mad Magazine um, 
probably much earlier than I should have been. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> it's a great book. It, much like The Simpsons, um, it draws you in with the cartoony stuff. And then the longer you read it, you're like, there's so much depth here that yeah. it, I just, I never should have gotten. So it's a great thing to read over and over. Calvin and Hobbes, I feel the same way. I read all those books, you know, hundreds of times. Uh, and the older I got, the more I was just like, man, this this poor kid, like people don't like him. That's why he's the way he is. He's yep. creative and he just builds his own worlds. Like probably most of us indie, indie authors or authors in general, we built our own worlds because we didn't fit into the one that was made for us. And that's how Calvin was. Like nobody really liked him, including his parents. So he just built this own, his own little world. So I, I yeah. think that's why a lot of us, us authors love Calvin and Hobbes so much. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I have, I have a half brother, but he's 11 years older than me. So around the age that I was reading that, you know, like he wasn't even in the home. Um, mm. And, and so I was always very lonely. And my, my parents moved a lot, like almost every year we were moving. And so there was a lot of time when I was just alone having to use my imagination. And so, you know, I, I really connected with, with Calvin. Mm -hmm. Um there's a reason my pen name is Calvin Ellis. Well, there's two ah. reasons. There's two reasons. One of them is Calvin and Hobbes. Okay. Well, you've already laid that out there. What's the second reason? Uh, so Kal-El is Superman's real name. Okay. And so Calvin Ellis was the name I tried to give my son when he was born. And my ex-wife said, hell no. Because she was fine with it until she realized it was a, a Superman reference. And she was like, no, that's not, that's not happening. <laughs> I named him Jordan instead. She was okay with that, but okay the sports icon fine the comic book character not not as much uh, can only push the, the x so far so going back there were two things i wanted to ask the second oh, one when your parents owned that uh the the video store did you guys have a back room with a beaded curtain yes so the thing that actually kept us in business was that my stepdad at the time was the um, the porn king of the central United States. Um, outside of Nevada, he had the largest porn collection of any video store. Um, and our video store was pretty, pretty large. We weren't successful by any means. We were actually very, very poor um, because Blockbuster came in and just really started to stomp out business. Mm -hmm. But the thing that kept us in business was that, that, that beaded curtain. Uh, well, we actually had batwing doors, but... Um, they were half doors. So you could, just, I would, I remember sitting on the floor behind the counter and being able to like look underneath the doors and see, uh, see all the things. And kind of my job at the store, I was, you know, between, like seven years old when my mom married my stepdad and started going to the video store a lot. But uh, my job was to people would come up, check the movies out, and we just had the display box. And so I'd have to take the display box, run back to the shelves behind the counter, find the movie, and bring the movie up and leave the box, display box and the thing. And that included the, the beaded curtain movies. And so I would be eight years old running around with this, you know, very graphic uh, box in my hand and like have to go put them back. And, you know, you go through that age and you're just, you get a little more curious. And so it takes me a little longer to get the movies and, um, but yeah, we had that, we had that beaded curtain. The, the two most popular sections we had were our porn section and our horror section. Wow. Because those are the two things that Blockbuster didn't really focus on back then. That's so awesome, man. Like yeah. I, and I, as a child, I got to curate the horror section, which just made me mm. just ecstatic. I remember put like, oh, Shocker's got the best box and you could push a button on it and his eyes light up. And so that's got to be on the front. And like, 
just building our horror section out. It pissed people off because it wasn't alphabetical, but I didn't care. I just <laughs> had to put it had to put it in the order that I wanted it. What a badass job for a kid! It was amazing. I got I got paid uh, ten cents a day. <laughs> wow. But wow. that was good because I would work five days a week. Uh, any, uh, I worked during the school days because we lived so far away from the video store that we went to school by it. And so I'd, you know, go from school to the video store. And then so five days a week, get my 50 cents. And then at the, uh, on the weekends, I would go to this uh, 50 cent um, uh, movie theater that played, you know, you could get in for 50 cents. And then they didn't care if you popped around all day and watched all the different movies. So, wow, that was, that was I, my life. Movies and books. That was it. And sports. <laughs> I could talk about this all day. I mean, you're just listening to you. It's bringing back so many memories because <laughs> yeah, a lot of the independent video stores that I went to as a kid, they had those, you know, the beaded curtains, but the yep. one that my dad frequented most, it had similar to what you're saying. It was sort of that old Western bar yep. swinging doors. Yep. The bat wings. Yep. I also had a traumatic experience with horror movies when I was four years old. My at that that same video store that I'm talking about, my dad allowed me to rent a movie called Child's Play 2. Yes. And I think maybe he just looked at the title and assumed it was a kid's movie. Oh, yeah. And there's a good guy doll. And, you know, yeah. it's fine absolutely horrifying and then that ne that next year for my fifth birthday he got me a my buddy doll oh yes and yes. very similar dolls oh yeah very similar uh -huh. and there's a picture that uh, somebody took at my birthday party where my dad is holding this doll out to me and I'm like <laughs> terrified like leaning back visibly um and yeah so whenever uh my, my parents are divorced and uh, whenever I would go to my dad's house and visit him, that doll was there and it was terrifying. And I would keep it locked in my little, like it, it was like a little cubby closet almost that had a door on it where I'd keep toys and I'd keep it locked in there, except when my dad came into my room to play Nintendo. When he was in the room, I would take it out and I would just like pound on it, beat the shit out of it, <laughs> fight it. And then as soon you as he walked up, away, yeah. throw it in there, close the door, run out of the room. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Smart, smart. Wait until you got back up to be, you know, yeah. mess the doll up a little bit. Yep. Clever, yep. clever. But I do remember that the 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 independent video store we went to, it must have had a pretty large horror section because it was it was a whole aisle and there were shelves on both sides yeah. with horror movies. And so, you know, the, the VHS box is facing outwards, you know, looking at you. And I remember mm -hmm. I would always, because I was curious, even at that age with, with horror and scary things. And so I'd go down the aisle and I'd be looking at all these scary images, but then I would also constantly have to like look over my shoulder because <laughs> in my mind, yes. I thought the monsters were coming out of the boxes behind me. That's, uh, I'm glad you say that because when I would, put the boxes up our video store ended up closing when i was uh 12 years old maybe 13 um just because blockbuster was too too powerful <clears throat> but uh and the internet was coming around and people could find porn other places but i would purposefully set the boxes up so that um our video store had like the long aisles but then had these like star racks so you would like walk into this little triangle section and there'd be horror movies on both sides and so i would like set them up as it looked like the monsters on the front were going to war with each other because I wanted people to have that experience where you're looking at one thing and then you like turn and there's another monster mm. just like staring in your face. Uh, and so it's nice to hear that people actually had reactions like that in video stores. Yeah, no, I definitely did.
The other thing you keep mentioning Blockbuster. Have you seen the Netflix documentary? Yes. Yeah. The last Blockbuster. Yeah. I just watched that um, a few months back. So good and so nostalgic. Oh, totally. Um, And so I feel like a huge traitor for this, but when I, when I was, uh, you know, a young man, I was, uh, I owned a security company and we're trying to get the security company off the ground, not super important, but I went to work at Blockbuster to, as a, you know, to supplement my income and I felt horrible about it. And I was like, it's a good thing. My stepdad is dead or he'd be so mad at me right now. Uh, but I loved it. It was one of the best jobs I ever had. And so I like had this fondness for Blockbuster too, not just the nostalgia of shopping there and, uh, you know, renting from there, but working there and like talking to people and like convincing them to rent these movies and fell in love with Blockbuster. Fast forward, you know, Blockbusters are closing down. My life had taken a lot of different turns, but I ended up being the regional director for an escape room. And one of our escape rooms was in Bend, Oregon, like a block away from the final blockbuster. Mm. Uh, and so I would have to travel out there a couple, like three or four times a year. Every single time I would go to that blockbuster and like hang out with the people in that documentary. Uh, and so when the documentary came out, I was just like, oh my God, like this is amazing. And so I got to watch all these people that I got to hang out with. And it just, uh, so it felt like nostalgia on so many different levels watching that that uh, that documentary. Wow. Because I'll probably, chances are I'll probably never go back there. I don't see why i'd have any reason to go to bend oregon other than go to blockbuster but that's interesting man like we uh, our 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 lives have uh, a few similarities the more you talk and say things because um my my stepdad actually worked for movie gallery in its waning days like he was there when when the ship completely went down but he worked there for a few years um and and so yeah it's interesting to know you know your stepdad was also associated with movie stores and yep i i I wish it was still around i mean i probably wouldn't be doing any of the things i'm doing or have the success that i'm having now uh because i would just probably live in that video store i'd be that weird guy that uh that sat around talking about movies to anybody that would come in let's uh let's move on so we don't live in the movie store talk um (laughs) We could probably live there, but yeah, that's yeah, not I why think, we're here today. I think we could. <laughs> so, may, and maybe this answer you've already given it—I I don't know—but I want to ask what what Stephen King's story scared you the most? Scared me the most. Good question. Um, you'd think, knowing for months that we were going to do this, I would be thinking of these, um, but I just there it just, it rotates so much, but if I had to pick one, it would probably be Pet Cemetery. Mm. Pet Cemetery um, scared the crap out of me, both the film adaptation and the book um, for different reasons. The, the, the book scared me because the writing in, in that particular book, it really felt like he was trying to, you know, level up and, and give you a type of horror that he hadn't given you before, uh, which I just loved. And then the movie, the the part with the sister with the you know where she's in the room and like the back and she's screaming and you kind of see the uh that really really scary that was the i think the only time i've ever had a nightmare after watching a horror movie was that scene and i mean based on you already sharing this um i i assume it's okay to ask this because you seem pretty open you can ask anything okay literally anything um are either reading the book or watching the film were there any um 
connections in your mind in terms of of gauge and seeing yes. him die and your yep. your your brother being so young 100 mm -hmm. um and that's why that was i think why when i read the book it was so scary is because gauge in the book uh in the movie same age as my brother when he when he died yeah. and the actor that they had playing the, it looked exactly like my little brother same haircut and everything wow and so it really it really hit home uh that that particular book in that particular movie and that's probably why it scared me so bad is because then i would start to think like what if this is donnie my brother like you know uh coming in and not being the same person because after he died i would have dreams of him all the time yeah and so then after reading the book those dreams would change and instead of it being Donnie, the little kid that liked to kick soccer balls and loved pizza. And then it was Gage, you know, after that. Wow. So yeah, definitely had, definitely had an impact. Pet Cemetery is my favorite, not just Stephen King book, but my favorite book of all time. Um, I just, I love it. And it, it's, I don't know, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a fairly happy, joyful uh, person, you know, and I, I try to always find the silver lining and put a positive spin even on negative situations. But I also have a level of melancholy. And I, you know, when I was in high school, I was huge into like emo music and that whole scene. And I still, you know, love that music. And, and, and I get into these moods where I enjoy sort of giving into those emotion emotions yes. and just basking in mm -hmm. that and so for me this book is so it's so dark and it's so dreary but at the same time it's so real and and for me it's the best work i've ever seen um in terms of looking at the topics of death and mm -hmm. grief and Absolutely. all of the what if questions that you ask in in those situations and um, I still, when I watched the movie, the uh, and and we're talking about the '90s TV uh, film, right. the original. Um, I when when Gage gets hit by the truck, mm -hmm. I I cry every time. Oh, yeah. And in the book, the the funeral scene with the fight and just like the high emotions, it's a, it, it brings up the same emotions in me. And, and for me, like that taps into one of my biggest and greatest fears. I don't, I don't have kids. I don't have kids. And, and, you know, Mrs. Gloom and I were right now we're saving up for a house and, and taking that next step in our life. And then, you know, we, we've talked some about having kids and we go back and forth and all the pros and cons. But like, for me, one of the things that really always holds me back in my mind from wanting kids is the the thought of ever losing them especially in a tragic situation like that and so it it gives me such high anxiety and 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 so that that book that movie it just taps into all of that and it gets me all worked up and i, I don't know why i like it but i but i but i i still like the book i still like the movie but that's that's one of my greatest fears even though i don't have kids it's just right. the thought of it and and i'm an empath um, so I can empathize with that, even though yeah. I don't have a child, even though I haven't lost a child, like I can empathize with just the, the, the absolute crush, right. the, the crushing weight of that. 
Well, that just, again, goes to how well King crafted that book. Like he can make you feel that even though you don't have kids, you almost know how it feels to lose a child because of this, the, the raw agony that those parents feel in that book and how they know that nothing good is going to come of like, he knows nothing good is going to come of what he does. He's already seen it. He saw it with the cat, but he does it anyway, mm-hmm. because he like, that's just how devastating it is. Like it's yeah. not, it's not a, I, I saw somebody compare it to, um, Oh, my kid's goldfish died. I'm going to go buy another one so that he doesn't know. And I said, you, you compare uh, pet cemetery to that but you clearly haven't read the book if that's what you think it is just replacing the child with a different one he wanted his child back so badly that he was willing to do anything for it and it, like so if you can read that book and feel like what the loss what it would feel like to lose a child i mean obviously it's not the same but the writing is just so good that you really do feel it and the first time i read it after my daughter was born my my first child was born when i was 17 i was still a teenager you know and i read this book and i had been taking care of my other two other siblings but um, so I, I felt the weight of that already, but then reading that book just completely changed my outlook on what it was like to be a parent because losing a sibling is one thing, losing a child is another. And so reading that and f- reading the, just the descriptions of the agony that he was in and the mother was in too, uh, just, you know, crippled me for a while. And that's yeah. probably why it's the scariest book is because there's so many different layers in the book. And for me, uh, of terrifying things in that book. You know, grief is something that I think everybody is scared of. Mm-hmm. And the the way that that's covered in the book, because when when church gets killed, um, it, it's not so much that, you know, that Lewis Creed is 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 grieving it, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want his daughter to have to go through the grief. So he's right. willing to sort of give this mm-hmm. a try. And it wasn't his idea. Um, you know, Judd, Judd leads him on and, you know, we we Uh can get real deep into that and the why, but then with Gage, it's his grief that leads him to, to do that, even though he knows how church came back, but grief has a way of, of, um, affecting the way that we think. And Mm -hmm. we're no longer in our right state of mind. And we have all these maybes and these what ifs in our minds. And then it shows, you know, at the end of the book, when he loses his wife, then the, the, the what ifs and the maybes, you know, well, maybe I just didn't get Gage into the ground soon enough. Right. Maybe right. it'll be different this time. Yes. And that's all just grief. Talk. Always trying to just with grief, you're always trying to justify everything. You yeah. try to, and he does such a good job at capturing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant book. Brilliant. Rational um, thinking is just, you know, I have a thrown out uh, a, a church bookmark sitting on my desk right now as well. So I have, I have a, uh, I had a church name or a cat named church, but that's beside. Anyway, you just yeah, said church's name and I was like, Hey, I have a bookmark right here. And for people that are, are just listening, um, you're, you're, you're wearing a Stephen King shirt, oh, you're yeah. wearing a, a okay. red rum. And this isn't, it wasn't like, I was just like, what am I going to wear? This is just like legitimately, if I'm not working, this is what I I wear. (laughs) Um, I've got a loser's club hat sitting over there. I've got most of my picture behind you. I've got the Stanley, the side Stanley picture over here. Yeah. Um, I have just so much Steven, my big driver poster, like these are dark tower, dark tower book set right here. So Um, once all these boxes are unfolded, I'll do a probably a walk around and 
once my office is, I'm building a bookshelf as an entrance, a hidden entrance for my office. Um, and so once I get that done, I'll probably do a Instagram thing with all my Stephen King paraphernalia. Oh, and That's this, of awesome. course, this typewriter has a piece of paper in it that says all work and no play makes Jack no play. Awesome. Because awesome. you can't have an old Underwood typewriter and not have that in it. <laughs> Stephen King hasn't, um, hasn't affected your life at all. Right? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> and the lives of literally everyone around me. <laughs> Who is your favorite king created character and, and oh, if, my if you God. have a few of them that's okay that is a what a question jeez that's um off the top i probably gotta say roland to shame roland is roland is kind of i don't know he's such an in-depth character um and so complex complex that and, and when i was younger i wanted to be roland because he's kind of the opposite of who i am uh, on the level he's the guy that'll just get the job done and not give a crap about who's what's in his way whereas i'm the opposite i'm just like everything is about the people everything is about the feelings um if my if i have a mission and it's going to hurt somebody then i've got to reevaluate my mission and mm -hmm. roland would just get it done didn't nothing could stop him and i, I really admired that um but then as you go in Rowan's journey, he starts to care about Eddie and Susanna and Jake and Oi. And it's just a beautiful thing, that fact that somebody could change that much and would be willing to change for people. Uh, and so I, I really, over that million plus pages, uh, you fall, or words, not pages, uh, you fall in love with Roland because he's falling in love with other people. So um, probably Roland, if I had to pick just one. Um, but I also love Eddie. These are people that I enjoy. And then, but then the evil characters, you know, you can't overlook Annie Wilkes. One of the, I think one of the best villains ever written, ever put to page because just so different than most villains. Yeah, if I could, uh, Flag is also, you know, depending on which book you're reading, mm -hmm. uh, Randall Flag is uh, also just an amazingly well-developed character. Um, I like Mike Noonan a lot from Bag of Bones um, mm, yes, and his yes. relationship with Kyra. Um, yeah. So I could just go on and on about characters. Uh, Stu Redman is another character I really liked uh, for a lot of different reasons because he's just like kind of the everyman. Um, and I always felt very basic in my life. And so I thought, oh, well, if the everyman can become the hero, then I can become the hero. So, yeah. Cool, cool. When we're looking at Stephen King's writings... You know, and not just his novels, but also his short stories. And especially as you get closer to the present, later in his career, the the breadth of it is just so wide and far reaching. And he's he's touched so many different genres mm -hmm. and, you know, written in different points of view. And, you know, stylistically, there are changes from book to book and story to story. And he's done a lot of experimentation. Um, but if, if you had to pick a specific horror sub genre that okay. Stephen King hasn't yet written in that you want to see him write something in, what, what would that yeah. be? Good question. Um, cause I mean, I feel like he's, he's dabbled on, he's done the, the zombie type thing. He's done, uh, apocalyptic he's done, um, you know, actually, uh, what I would really like 
Let me think, has he done this yet? Maybe not. I, I, I feel like he could do a, a really, like a, a slat, like a true slasher mm, uh, mm-hmm. film. Cause I feel like he's done almost everything else. And there are slashers in some of his work, but if he, if he like really dedicated himself to like a true slasher uh, and there might be one that I'm just not thinking of right now, but it's hard because he, he, there's so many, he's got like the alien stuff with like from Buick eight and you just every there's, there's always, he's always coming up with something new, but um, I can't think off the top of my head of just a true slasher that he's, uh, that he's done. Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. And you know, it, it seems like slashers are making a bit of a resurgence mm-hmm. and in, in film, you know, I mean, Scream's about to, to, to oh, come out again, yes, but then yes. in books, you know, in 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. we've had a litany of slashers coming yes. out. And so maybe, maybe this is the time for, for the king to step in and, and I mean, give, give his accent to it. Yes. If we could pitch an idea, because nobody writes nostalgia the way Stephen King does. Yeah. And it seems to be the hook that everybody's grabbing for these slasher films are like, they're making it based on the nostalgia of the 80s. Um, yes. There's an amazing book. It's really hard to find now um, called um, The Summer Has Ended and We Are Not Yet Saved. And it is just this incredible book about this slaughter happening at a, a special effects camp. Really, really good. Um, but again, attaches to the nostalgia of the 80s. Um, My Heart is a Chainsaw. Again, the whole book is a, um, a slasher book, but it relies heavily on the nostalgia of the 80s. So I think Stephen King could probably do that better than just about anybody. So if he set it in the 80s at a you know camp, um, he would probably find just some crazy supernatural thing to bring to it that would be uh, just brilliant and beautiful. So that's, if I could, if I could ask Mr. King to do a slasher, that would be the one that I would want to see is that great eighties nostalgia. And because I think that would also just pull him back from the hard case novels that he's writing now and the mystery novels and kind of just shove him right back into that beautiful horror that he does so well. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that this is, this is a good transition for my next question. Um, what what are your thoughts on Stephen King's evolution as an author, especially you know as it concerns his move away from horror? Right. Um, I kind of I kind of love it a little bit. Uh, I miss the old Stephen King, obviously, mm-hmm. as I think most of us do. Um, yeah. But we have to allow the man to evolve into yes. what he wants, and he has always said that you know um crime thrillers and suspense was always his favorite type of book to read he loved horror but the part of the horror that he loved the most was the mystery of the horror and um i know you just finished my book so i kind of saw the where he was going with it and tried to kind of not that i could beat him to it but i wanted to make my horror novel more mystery than horror um the first couple of drafts were way more horror and then agents were like mystery is selling better Stephen King's writing mystery, you should write mystery too. And so I, I actually removed a lot of stuff um, based on what the agents thought. I regret it now, uh, especially since I decided to self-publish. But um, yeah, I, I really like it. And um, when I was going through Mr. Mercedes, uh, the, the Mercedes trilogy, or the, ben Hodge, or the Bill Hodges trilogy, um, I there's that point when you're just like, where's the supernatural stuff? Like, that's what I want. I love the the horror, like the scene where he's driving through the crowd is just 
brutal, just brutal uh, and beautiful in the way that it's written. But I was always waiting for that supernatural thing. And then there's that moment where you realize you're reading a Stephen King book where, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it for people uh, because I think it is a really nice little turn, but you realize, oh, this is Stephen King. And then the second two books, you know, deal a little, or delve a little more into that. And then you get like the spinoffs, like The Outsider and stuff like that, that are just fully involved in the supernatural. But um, it's nice that he started it and then gave us that little taste. And he's like, hey, it's still me. Don't forget it's me. Uh, and then, you know, like later, also another, you know, just true crime novel, but also has that supernatural element in it that yeah. kind of gives it that sixth sense vibe. Joyland too. Joyland. Yes, absolutely. Joyland. Yeah. Um, we kind of saw it early on with Colorado kid too, where, you know, it was, um, you know, he wanted, you could tell he wanted to write the mystery novel. Uh, and I'm glad he finally did. I'm glad he finally just said, this is the thing that I want to write. I'm going to write it because, uh, most of the stuff that I write is horror, but I also love a good mystery and I also love comedy and, you know, I'll write anything that I want to write and I don't want people telling me that I'm not allowed to write it. So, uh, I got to give him that same respect and I'll read anything he writes. And some of it, I absolutely love some of it. I'm just like, all right, cool. I supported you because, you know, I love the person and I just don't have to love every book. Yeah. I don't love every meal, you know, my girlfriend cooks but I'll eat every meal she cooks because she went through the trouble of cooking it. So yeah. Yeah. I, weird analogy, but it's, uh, it's there. No, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I, I have similar thoughts, you know, of course I would love to see more straight horror from Stephen King, but you know, I mean, he gave us so much. Right. And right. I think that he has earned the respect he has earned the ability to do whatever the hell he wants. And I mean, from the beginning, he never liked to label himself as a horror right. author. I think yeah. the, the media um, gave him that moniker. And, you know, I mean, you can only fight that so much. Mm -hmm. And he obviously had a lot of horror stories in him. Right. But, you know, at, at this point, we all change so much. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, they say that every 10 years, you know, your your the the cells in your body have replicated to the point where you know no cell that existed in your body ten years ago is even is is even there. You you know right. you have completely changed who you are, and so for someone to go through um, you know decades, multiple three four decades of of this, yes. um, you know he's he's earned the ability to write what he wants, and I believe that Stephen King is a genre unto himself. Because yes, whether whether you're reading a Stephen King mystery, whether mm -hmm. you're reading Stephen King crime, whether you're reading something funny or lighthearted, whether you're reading horror, the and and he says this too that when you pick up his vo his book, you are looking for his voice, and yes. that voice is the same no matter what you're reading, no matter what genre, mm -hmm. no matter what subgenre, whether it's long, whether it's short. His voice is always there, even in his nonfiction. It's yeah. there. Absolutely. You read Dance Macabre, and like it's, you can tell that is Stephen King saying these things, <clears throat> and I would I would even say if you asked him himself, he probably wouldn't say he's a horror novelist or a crime novelist. He would say he's a suspense novelist because that's the thing that is consistent through all of it. And if you yeah. read uh, on writing, he talks about the movies. He talks about like having a real impact. Um, he talks about like 
um, the when they remove the bricks when he's watching the show and like the skeletons back there. The the part he focuses in on isn't necessarily the skeleton; it's the removing of the brick. It's yeah. the suspense of like, what are we going to find? Um, and so, obviously, that's the most present in horror. But he seems to also carry it really well into the into the um, the mystery novels. Is there such a good air of suspense because he's so good at doing that uh, and and holding that that thing just long enough? So you you the um, the mystery of what's behind the door is scarier than what's behind the door. Um, yes. I think he mentions, you know, if you if you know that there's a giant ant behind the door, it's terrifying. But if you open the door and see a 30-foot ant, that's terrifying. But now you know it's not a 60-foot ant. Um, and so that that suspense, <clears throat> I think, is, is more his genre than horror or mystery. He just happens to dabble in both. Yeah, the uh, as an author, I try to keep that in mind, that the 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 scary thing in the darkness that my reader creates in their imagination will mm -hmm. always be more horrifying than any description I can put on the page. Yes, absolutely. And I think he's really good at doing that as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So as I mentioned earlier, I, I recently and very recently, just this morning, I finished listening to the audiobook of your novel In the Hills Above the Gristmill. And I couldn't help but pick up on the numerous Stephen King callbacks. Yeah, it's it's littered. They are literally littered throughout that book. So let's let's see how good I did. No, I, I heard I heard references to it, uh -huh. Skeleton Crew, yes, Cujo, yes, and The Shining, yes. What did I miss? I'm sure. Uh, I, I mean, we would have to <clears throat> we would have to go through line by line because there are so many things that are just nods. To every, I, I don't know that I've ever written anything or done anything in my life that didn't have nods to Stephen King in it. Wow. Um, I used to have a uh, a never pre-Warcraft, pre-World pre of Warcraft, there was a game called Neverwinter Nights. I had my own server and the king of this realm was King Stephen. And there was this huge thing erected and everything in it was labeled with some sort of Stephen King reference. So I don't know that I've ever done anything that wasn't just full of Stephen King nods in one way or another so um yeah I think you've those were the big one obviously you know his dog's name is Torrance so it's impossible not to you know to pick up on that and then that guy happens to be an author that is obsessed with Stephen King so um he might have been based off of me a little bit he's in law enforcement and loves Stephen King and wants to be a writer so uh, I wanted to name my dog Torrance too I ended up naming him Ender instead but well, Ender and Ecto are my dog's names, um, but eventually one will be Torrance, I'm sure. Well, it's funny too, because you, you couldn't, it's like you couldn't even help yourself. You no, wanted I to couldn't. make the Shining reference with naming uh -huh. him Torrance, but you couldn't get to that without saying, now it's a big dog and you'd think he'd name him Cujo, but instead. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, yes. Because I just, I, I can't help but to put the references in there. And obviously, you know, I could have left out the part of Torrance because in the but the reader might be like, well, you should have named him Cujo, but I wanted him to know that that's not the type of person that Grover Northfield is. He didn't want his dog to be named Cujo. He wanted it to be Torrance. Now, when it comes to all these Stephen King references and nods, is it something that you are sort of purposely putting in there to pay uh, ode to or respect to Stephen King, or is it more along the lines, or maybe it's both, but more along the lines of 
because Stephen King is such a big part of your life that mm -hmm. to bring realism to your writing, it just has to be there. That's what it is. It's um, I would be lying to myself and be disingenuous to who I am if I didn't just litter it with with my books with um, pop culture references and references to Stephen King because that is at the core of it. That's who I am. I am. Uh, I mean. I like to think that I'm a, a compassionate human being first, and then I'm a wealth of pop culture and Stephen King knowledge. So those are just the things I am. And I like, you know, reading the book, there's nods to um, 10 things I hate about you and uh, a bunch of other little things and every character, because in our lives, everybody's got a favorite movie and all of us quote movies. We all just quote different movies. I yeah. mean, at parts of our life, every single one of us was quoting uh, you know, Ace Ventura and every one of us was quoting um, uh, Austin Powers, you know, but there's those ones that we keep. Like I quote Jerry Maguire all the time. I quote, uh, I, I'd say a good 35 to 40% of the words that come out of my mouth are movie quotes um, in just daily conversation. And most people don't realize it. And so I want my characters to sound like that because I feel like that's how people actually sound. And so if I didn't put that in there, I wouldn't feel the book would just wouldn't feel the characters wouldn't feel real to me because that's how the people in my life actually are. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I think about some of our spooky friends and some of the indie horror that I've read this year. And, you know, I, I, I read mouthful of ashes by brianna morgan and mm -hmm. there's all these pulp uh pop culture references and you know lost boys especially mm -hmm. is a big one mm -hmm. or you read Haley newland's take your turn teddy and there are all these references to the beatles or to hank yes. aaron and baseball um or to it and mm -hmm. then you know i i read the fear by spencer hamilton and there are are these references to jaws and yes. and how powerful that movie was and you know even in my own writing i slip i slip that sort of stuff in i mean i i make a um a a huge reference to it and fear and mm -hmm. voodoo child but then in the potted plant you know even um, I, I have a Dutch friend and she just listened to the audiobook and she, she messaged me the other day and was like, I can't believe that you put a reference into the story of the little Dutch boy who puts his finger in the dike. <laughs> and she was like, I didn't know that, you know, people in America knew that story. And I was like, well, I don't know if everybody did, but I right. know when I grew up, I heard that yes. story a lot. Of course. And well, and if you, if you watch the Simpsons, the Simpsons was great at covering all of that stuff because that's where I learned about the little Dutch boy was there's an episode where they talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And we can't, you can't escape pop culture references. No, and so everywhere. why would you try to take them out of your writing? Right. Well, somebody told me, uh, one, of, one of the agents that I had talked to said that um, I was dating myself and dating my characters by putting those references in. And I said, well, if I'm, if I'm creating a, a, a world, I want them to know what the clothing looked like at that time. I want them to know what the cars that people were driving looked like at that time. I want them to know the technology available at the time. And so if I want all of those things, that dates it too. So why couldn't I put references? And the argument was, well, people won't get them and they'll feel left out. Well, sorry. You know, sometimes people use big words in books too. And I don't understand all of them. Sometimes mm. I just use context clues to answer it and sometimes i'll look it up it's fine it's not going to kill anybody yeah yeah 
Yeah, the um the next episode of Into the Gloom, I'm having Christopher Badcock on. And I don't know this for sure, but I want to ask him. But for me, when I'm reading Those You Killed and and I you're you're getting all of these uh, callbacks to this astronaut and then some of the artwork that I've seen done for that now, since the book has come out, I can't help but think of the band Brand New and the cover of their album Deja and Tendu. And like, uh-huh. I want to ask, like, is this a reference or? Or is it just a coincidence, yeah. which is sometimes more fun? Yes, yes. <laughs> Going back to your novel, the, the main character in your story is a badass female lead named Paisley Mott. Did you draw any inspiration from some of King's heroic final girls in your creation of her? I did not, actually. Okay. Um, So Paisley is actually a mix of both of my daughters um, and a little bit of me, but a little bit of me probably came out through my daughters. So I've got a 23-year-old daughter, Brittany, who is um, just amazing. She's really anxious and really nervous, but she's also the kind of person that will take that anxiety and use it for her good. So she went to college on a full academic scholarship, and she's now a teacher at an underserved school, uh, underserved high school. So she took that anxiety and said, well, I'm just going to look it in the face. and I'm going to make a difference with it. Uh, And then Paisley's, so a lot of her anxiety and her just the will to just get stuff done is from Brittany. And then my youngest daughter, Maddie, is just uh, just hilarious and sassy and just all like, there's a line where um, somebody says, there's not a whole lot of crime here. And she said, yeah, but other than the people being murdered on the daily, uh, like that's just a total thing that my daughter would say. And so while writing the book, if I got to a point where I was like, what would what, what is Paisley going to do next? I would just think, how would my daughters respond in this situation? Or how would mm-hmm. I, would I hope my daughters respond in this situation? Um, because obviously, you know, there's always that moment where the final girl says, oh, I would never, you know, they always run up the stairs when they should run out the front door. And then they run up the, the stairs because there's always a reason. And so I would ask myself, what would, what would I want my daughters, if I'm teaching them and raising them right, what would I want them to do in this situation? And I feel like Paisley, normally does that there's a moment where she goes out into the woods alone which is you know questionable but um she does everything she does she does for a purpose and she tries to justify what she's doing and tries to be smart about what she's doing and that's what i've seen both my daughters do time and time again yeah i love how there is a scene where she is running down the stairs Mm -hmm. instead of up them (laughs) Yes. yes i mean that if you base this character off of your two daughters, I would imagine that your your fatherly heart is bursting at the seams with, with the feedback that you've gotten. Because before Absolutely. I ever knew what this novel is about, before I ever read it, I kept seeing mostly females comment on IG talking about how much they loved Paisley Mott, how much of a badass Paisley Mott was, how yeah. much more they wanted of Paisley Mott. That has been the biggest feedback I've gotten is um, on Paisley herself and how amazing she is and how much people want. And that just touches my heart because um, I wanted to write like the reason this is my first book. I've got other novels that I that I had, but this was a, a letter to my daughters to say, 
this is this is what you can be and this is what you're becoming because this character is based off of you like every decision she makes is a decision i know my daughters are capable of making um and there was this uh uh this point when cemetery of forgotten books on ig uh gemma she read the book and then a couple days later there was a uh, one of those little um questions on the stories and the question was if you could be backed up by any character in a book who would it be and she chose paisley mott like to to have her back and i was just like blown away by that and i messaged her and i said are, are you serious and she said yeah that she's amazing and that just uh, I don't know. There's something, there, the validation in that, like, uh, I like when people are like, oh, this is a good book. Great. But the fact that they love Paisley Mott is the thing that just really, um, really touches me on like a, a, a deep level because it is based off of my daughters. And um, also as a, a white man writing a female character, somebody told me one of the agents, one of the reasons I didn't want to go with an agent is because uh, they told me that I couldn't write women. I shouldn't be allowed. Men shouldn't be allowed to write women. And I was just like, I don't, I think we should be respectful when we do it, but I think, you know, we should be respectful when we're writing anybody that we don't have their specific um, universal experiences. So somebody told me I couldn't write women and I was just like, well, I'm, I'm writing this for my daughters, so I'm going to do it. Um, so, yeah, so the, the feedback I've gotten about Paisley has been the, my favorite part of writing that book um, because it's a validation for not only my writing, but that clearly I'm doing something right with my daughters if that's how, if they behave in a way that Paisley would behave and people seem to respond and resonate well with that. Yeah, and clearly you can write a, a female lead character with respect because there are so many, you know, female reviews um, just talking about how much they love that character and and yeah i agree with what you're saying too like we you know we should take uh, care and be respectful when we're writing but once again this is fiction and we are writing mm -hmm. and if if i'm only writing about the things that i have personally experienced and i know about right. like every book i come out with is going to have a straight white male as the lead Right. And, you know, even for me being a straight white male, like that shit would get boring. Yeah. Like I want to hear other stories. Yes. And, you know, I wrestled with the same thing with Voodoo Child because my uh, main character, my protagonist in that book, Finn Marshall, is a, a, a young black high school male. And I wrestled with the same thing. Like, you know, uh, what kind of feedback am I going to get here? But the reason why I wrote that is because for me growing up as, as a kid and even into my teenage years, my entire upbringing, I was just, whether it was in Florida, whether it was in Alabama, I was just surrounded by 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 black folks you know mm -hmm. my my best friends were black the you know i was always at their houses and a lot of the times like my friends group especially when i got older and into my teen years and early 20s it was one of those things where you know i'd be hanging out with 20 people and i'm the only white guy there like i'm right. there with you know a, a bunch of my black friends and i'm the only white dude 
Um, and so, you know, when it when it comes to black experience and black voices and black culture, like that was a huge part of my upbringing. And for me to be able to share some of what me as a white guy learned from my black friends and and their families to be able to share that in a book and put that out there, like I felt like that was powerful. And the feedback that I've gotten from some of my black friends that have read it has been very positive and how I dealed with issues of racism and growing up black in the South. And even for, for Finn, it gets even murkier because his father was black, but his mother was white. And so then you deal with that, you know, concept uh, that, that mixed people deal with that they don't sometimes feel like they fit in in either culture right and um and so i'm i'm glad that i wrote it i'm glad that i put it out there i'm glad that i didn't allow that that fear um of what some people might think um keep me from putting that story out there absolutely um similar to you i actually grew up in an all-black neighborhood and so that's why grover northfield is a black man in an area that he doesn't because i associated so much with grover that that is the representation all of the characters are a little bit of me um all of them including courtney uh they're all parts of me and so grover was that part of me that growing up in a, a black neighborhood and just admiring the strength and tenacity of these people like this the, in the neighborhood i grew up in was a, a forgotten neighborhood here in denver and um very there no services underserved community uh huge illiteracy problem in our, our community and just the tenacity of of the people that worked out there and just so i just i admired it so much and so the representation of myself in the book was grover um obviously there's a lot of differences but that's why i wanted to to make him the outsider because that's how i felt growing up is because i was the white kid in this neighborhood um but kind of getting back to writing about women is, and like I've gotten one person that um, at, that read the book and said, uh, women wouldn't behave this way. You, the, you, you've done a poor job. And I was just like, okay, well, I appreciate that because I'm not a woman. So it's important for, you know, especially white men that are writing to hold space for people that read these books and don't see their experience because that is still incredibly valid. So um, if a woman comes to me and says, I didn't feel represented in this book. I have to respect that. Like I must've missed something. Uh, and I think it's a great conversation to have. And so I reached back out and said, well, what could I have done to make it feel more realistic? Um, and I listened and I actually changed a thing in the, the sequel that I'm working on now uh, to kind of reflect that, to, right. to bring that up so that that person, if they decide to read the book, I don't know that they will, uh, will see that yeah, I'm not, I'm not that person. I'm not going to be able to, you know, make it feel hundred percent authentic, but I want you to be able to at least feel a little bit nostalgic about the things that are happening in this book and feel a little connected to this character. And thankfully I've, I've had pretty good success with that with Paisley. I had a similar interaction conversation with Jamie Stewart when I was reading uh, one of his short stories and in it, the the main character is a female and she is a lesbian and the way that that he described her thoughts um on sex especially i remember when i read it and i was like i don't know about this man and i i i i reached back out to him 
And I, I just, to me, it felt like the way that she was thinking about things and talking about things and describing things was very much how a male would think about things and describe things. And so I, I told him that and his response was, you know, he kind of laughed about it <laughs> and he was like, it's so funny because, you know, I, I, I had some uh, early readers of this that are female, that are lesbians, and they commented on the fact that it was so spot on and that they loved it. And so, you know, I'm just like, ah, fuck, what do I know? You know? Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, but it's nice that you were thinking that and like that we uh, we all in our little spooky friends community feel comfortable enough saying, yes, hey, this is a thing. This is a concern, but also trusting our friends enough to say, yeah, I, I, I see it's a concern. Here's how I approached it. Thank you for bringing it up instead of us just getting defensive and being like, well, the hell do you know? Right. We've all got blind spots, right? <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're never going to make everybody happy. No. Because we're also different. We all have such different experiences. And just because someone reads a a story and they say, "Uh, I I can't relate to this, you might have 10 other people that are just like, wow, you captured my feelings, my thoughts, my experience spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after I finished uh, In the Hills, the the first draft, um, my my oldest daughter was, I think, the first reader of it. And she said, uh, yeah, this is good. This is this. I, I like this character. And I was like, that's all I need. I don't care if anybody else ever likes the character. My, my number one reader, the, the, the person who in my life currently has supported me the longest is my oldest daughter. Mm. Um, and as long as she likes the character, then I'm okay. Um, there was this point where um, this is just this little story about my daughter <clears throat> and how supportive she is and why it was important for me to base the character off of her. Um, I had written uh, a couple of novels and probably a dozen short stories, uh, three or four screen full-length screenplays, and they were on my laptop. And I thought, well, I should probably back these up onto a thumb drive. And so I did. And I had the laptop and my thumb drive in my backpack, and my car was broken into, and they stole both. And so I lost basically my life's work. And I just decided I'm done writing. I'm not going to write anymore. Spent all my time on it. Didn't go anywhere. I failed. I'm done. And so I'm driving my daughter to school one day and she's probably fifth or sixth grade at this time and uh, got the other kids in the back, but my daughter always sat up front and we'd have these really good conversations. And she said, you used to play football in high school, right? And I said, uh, yeah. And she said, did you ever get injured? I said, yeah, I did. And I tore my ACL a couple of times and like, and she's like, oh, good thing you gave up after that. And I was like, I didn't. I, I rehabbed my knee and I went back out and played. And she was like, then why'd you stop writing? Because your laptop got stolen. And I was just like, well, Damn. I just didn't know what to say. I'd never been owned that way by a fifth grader. <laughs> uh, and so I just, uh, that, like, that was, that's Paisley Mott right there. That's, mm. you know, she's going to be kind. She's going to try to think of a way to make the connection, but she's going to tell you the truth. And even if that truth hurts a little bit, she's going to tell it to you. And that's, that's Brittany. And that's why it was so important that she be the first reader of that book. Um, and so once she gave me the green light and the thumbs up that Paisley was an okay character and that was an okay story for me to tell, that became the, the book I wanted to publish first. Wow. That's cool, man. Yeah, I, I can, I, I love the amount of heart that you put into your writing and into the drive that you have for writing. And it, the, the story you just told, it sort of reminds me of Stephen King's success in the start of it, the fact that, you know, his wife, Tabitha, had to Mm -hmm. come pull out (laughs) 
the okay. early parts of Carrie from the right. trash bin. Yep. And what would this world be like if she hadn't done that one thing and encouraged him and if he wasn't open to listening? Right. Absolutely. Like we have to all be willing to listen to critics. Sometimes those, the best critics we have are the ones we love the most because those are the ones we trust. Yeah. And so Tabitha pulling those things out, knocking the ashes off and saying, these are good. Like this is something. Um, that's kind of how I felt with my daughter. And my daughter was like, yeah, you should, you should keep writing. And my, uh, my girlfriend was like, yeah, this is, these are good stories. Cause she's had to sit and listen to me for hours. Just be like, what if the story was about this? And I'll just talk for two or three hours about what I think is a good story. Uh, and she, that happens all the time. And she just puts up with it and she'll tell me, yeah, that's good. And I'll sit and I'll write a book about it. You know? So it's listening to those friends and, uh, you know, that pull out the papers and knock the ashes off. That's where, I think that's where the magic happens. And then knowing that somebody like Stephen King had that helps when I'm writing something, I'm like, this isn't good. But if he didn't think it was good and he threw it away, like, what am I, who am I to judge? I'm not a yeah. judge of what's good writing. If Stephen yeah. King wasn't, then I'm not. Wow. Well, before we go any further, allow me to call out the elephant in the room. Right. Anybody who has read this novel or even checked out the Kindle preview will be screaming to know how you <laughs> came to the decision to use the opening lines that you did. On page um, one of yes. your novel, you wrote, it takes eight pounds of pressure to rip off a human ear. Considerably more force is needed for an arm or a leg. Surprisingly little effort, however, is needed to pull the guts out of someone and hang them from a tree. Um, they say, write what you know. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, why, why do you know this information, sir? So outside of my writing life and my coaching life, um, before that, I owned a um, successful security company. And I got into that early on um, into law enforcement because I used to train people to basically train people to kill other people. Um, and so I would, I trained uh, close quarters, weapons, combat, defense tactics. Um, I, I taught people literally how to maim and kill other people. Um, I helped <clears throat> create a thing called rapid emergency deployment after Columbine that um, is still used to this day in, um, in, it's an incursion technique that we now use to um, breach schools when there's school shooters and not just schools, but now it's been adapted to a lot of other things. So I spent a lot of time studying ways to um, disarm and disfigure human beings. So I know that it takes just about eight pounds of pressure to rip off somebody's ear. And because I knew that, I decided, hey, what's a good way? Because Stephen King says the most important line in the book is the first one. And yeah. so I was just like, what's going to be something that really just captures the unique essence of um, what I want the bad guy in this story to be about is creating pain. And I mean, I don't want to say too much about what the, the intent of the bad guy is because I don't want to spoil anything, but um, that line just kept resonating with me and like, how can we do damage that doesn't take a whole lot of force to do damage? But then if you had the force available, what damage could be done? Yeah, that's cool. And it's, it's, it's a killer hook. Thank you. Um, I, I'm a big believer in hooks as well. And I try to do that in, in my writing and I'm, I'm pretty proud of 
my debut novel, the opening, and I, I've gotten some feedback. It was actually the last thing that I changed before I published it. I went to that first page, the first few uh, sentences, and I tweaked some things. And what, what I ended up with was the day would end with death and destruction. Yet Brefkus had been nothing special, nothing too flashy <laughs> or memorable, just pancakes and bacon. Mark may have cherished it more if he'd known it would be the last meal he'd ever have with his parents. That's a good line. That's a good opening right there. It hooks you, right? It does. It does. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, I read this thing, uh, this article once. It was like the best first lines in books ever. And on that list was the uh, man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed mm. the first line of the gunslinger. And, uh, and so when Stephen King says the thing about the good first line, I always, every time I pick up a book, I'll read that first line and I'm like, this person understood the assignment. And, uh, and that line with the breakfast, like, because like the first line, it starts out great, but then with the breakfast, you're like, wait, what? And then it, it finishes off well. Uh, it, so much suspense, mystery, intrigue, all of it packed into one sentence. Great killer first line. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm proud of it. And I'm, I'm happy that I made the decision to, to change that because initially that hook wasn't there. It was just talking about breakfast. No right. foreshadowing. <laughs> the foreshadowing is always important. <laughs> yes. Yes. Especially in horror. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I've, I've seen it mentioned and I, I noticed it also on Goodreads that this novel um in the in the hills above the grist mill it's the first book in a series mm -hmm. so let me ask you when can we expect more paisley mott and what can we expect from book two so uh the first let me answer the first one i have no idea i have no idea when it's going to be done um i've got pretty much the entire story on page and it's just like mixing itself and trying to figure out what fits where and how it fits because it is much 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 darker than the first book um, it has more of the tone that the book originally the first book originally had before the agent said you know you should kind of rethink about there was a lot more of uh destruction and dismembering in the in the first book originally mm -hmm. um we saw a lot more of the aftermath of of what was happening um the only scene that i really wanted to keep in the book was the scene from the diner that they were like, this is too graphic. You have to take this out. And I was like, it's a horror novel. I want people to know that I was, that it's a horror novel with a mystery, not the other way around. And so I left the, the, the very graphic diner scene in, but um, the second book has a lot more um, horror elements in it. And it's a lot darker so much so that there has been times when, while writing it, where I was just like, I don't, this might be a little too far. Um, but the whole idea of Paisley's journey is she started out not sure if this was a thing she wanted to do, but wanted to try. And so her going to Greywater Ridge was, let's see if this is a thing I want to do. And then she ends up getting just thrown right into the middle of this, this thing. And so now in the second book, it's a decision. The first one, she just, mm. she ended up there and then made the decision to help somebody. And in this one, she makes a decision to help somebody first and then dives into something. So um, the thing she's choosing to dive into sounds... Um, you know, innocuous enough, but ends up being very, very much darker than even she anticipates. And then it kind of opens the the road for what will become the third, fourth, and fifth books um, in this just darker series that just keeps getting darker by the book. 
Cool. That makes me happy. I, I will say that, I mean, I, I loved this book. I highly Thanks. enjoyed it and I will be highly recommending it and a review, uh, a gloom review will be coming <laughs> soon. Um, but I will say that I was, I will, I, you nailed something you said earlier. I was like, oh yeah, well that's, that's spot on. You nailed the mystery part of it, but I was hoping for more horror. But then mm -hmm. when I saw that you had mentioned that there was going to be more horror coming, I got so excited. And so I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this and I'll, I'll keep my eyes peeled. Um, I'm also excited about the, the, the bonus episode because you've mentioned that you're going to be sharing a short story with me to narrate um and and so i'm 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 excited about that and it, it sounds like it's a bit darker in tone maybe at least uh, it's a little of both it's actually more playful in tone but also darker in tone okay okay um but yeah i'm i'm excited to to see that and it's a bummer that agents came in and sort of mess with your head about it yeah. but you know once again i'm always i'm trying to find the the silver lining here um i i like that you ended up going the route of self-publishing because now you know with this second one mm -hmm. you can keep it darker you can go the route you were originally going to go and it doesn't matter what any agent might say or think about it right right well the age so a couple of things that the agents said is there's um the second chapter it's it's a dream sequence type thing uh the first chapter it ends with the word hand job and they were like you can't have that in the book and i was like why it's a horror book and they're like no the word hand the, the the phrase hand job doesn't belong in in this book and i was just like well it's my book and i i, I like the jarring effect that that has um and then so they said that, but then they also said that I should, there's a, there's a, without spoiling anything, there's a scene where two characters are intimate and it kind of just, the action builds up and then drops out and we don't get to see the details. They wanted me to put the details in. And I said, I don't want to put the details in. I don't, I don't feel like the details are needed. I feel like the scene, the important part of the scene is before and after that's not, and they, so I said, you can't want me to put a detailed, a graphic sex scene in, but then tell me that the term hand job is too much. Uh, plus basing this character off of my daughters, it didn't want to write a scene that was, you know, graphic sex. So it didn't happen. Um, and so that's kind of where I finally decided I was done dealing with agents and um, that I would just publish it myself. But they also, you know, I listened to them on some of the horror and they said this might be off-putting because, um, and I think the agents were very wrong about this particular thing, but they said that um, the, the focused audience would be women, which I, I agree with that part. I think um, I have found um, more women reading it than men, uh, but they said that women won't like the, the horror aspect as much and you'll get less readership from women based on that and i said well, it's a horror book like and women that like horror are awesome and should be written to just like everybody else and so well the audience is much smaller and i said i don't care the fact that it's an audience in the first place is what i care about and so early on i decided i don't care how many people read the book i just want some people to read it and i hope that the people that do enjoy it and they have 
uh, for the most part. I've had a couple of, you know, one-star reviews that people didn't leave, you know, a thing on. I just got to assume that they just didn't like it. And then I had the lady that reached out and told me I shouldn't be writing women, but she still gave it a five-star review. So go figure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the agents and that really kind of messed with my head a lot, like you said, but also gave me an, I, the idea of, um, it was supposed to be just one book, but because I, I kind of nerfed it a little bit, it gave Paisley a better arc, I think. So Paisley started off kind of wanting to dabble in paranormal exploration and ended up smack dab in the middle of this weird thing that happens in the book. Uh, but now she's prepared for an even darker story because of that. And so now her arc stretches across multiple books and the things that she learns in each book prepare her more for the thing that's about to happen to her next. So um, without the agents, it might've just been a straight single horror book um, that I didn't like, uh, or maybe I did like, but didn't, I didn't have anything to continue with, but because the agents didn't like certain things, I changed it. And now I feel like it's at least five or six books. And there's a Paisley verse that there's a couple of spinoff books that I have worked on that Paisley, ex Paisley exists in that world that don't necessarily revolve around Paisley. And a lot of it is due to agents not liking the horror aspect of the book. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. It, it, it turned out how it needed to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the notion that, that women don't like horror, you know, the majority, I, I write bonkers, horror right? and the majority of my readers are, yes. are women. Absolutely. Um, and the hand job thing was jarring. And without giving any spoilers, for me, it was who was saying it yes. um, and to whom. And so I, mm -hmm. I perked up and I was like, wait a second, what is going on here? And it, right. you know, it's clarified um, yes. in, in the next chapter, but it kept me like, I have to go to the next chapter. Right. Um, I like the I like chapter cliffhangers and I utilize yeah. that uh, in, in a lot of my writing as well. Um, well. It's just like that first sentence being really important. You know, a lot of people will be like, I'll give this book one chapter. And if I don't like the first chapter, I'm putting it down. And that first chapter, there's, a, there's not a whole lot going on. It's just, um, but it starts well, and it ends with a cliffhanger to force people to go to the next chapter to kind of see the tone of what the book is going to be. Because the first chapter doesn't really set the tone in that particular book it doesn't you get a little more of that in the second chapter and so i needed something to make sure that that person was going to flip over and read the next page yeah i tried something new with my novella the potted plants and in the back of the book in both the the paperback and the ebook i gave people the first three chapters of voodoo child for free mm -hmm. but the chapter three ends on a major cliffhanger <laughs> smart yeah smart <laughs> dirty and smart <laughs> right right um but no something else about your novel is that i can see it really resonated re resonating with a female audience because the book is I don't know how else to describe it other than that it is very sexy. It's not a romance novel. It's not erotica, but it's very sexy. And there's definitely romance in it. And mm -hmm. it hints at a lot of things. And I, I like that. And, yeah. But I also know that my wife, she really likes that and likes those types of, of stories. And she likes mystery, but 
if there is a romance or there is, you know, sexual tension mm -hmm. that is going to, you know, fulfill her more than just a straight mystery where there right. is no kissing or yes. there is no sexual tension. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it takes me back to the princess bride. Is this a kissing book? Well, no, it's not a kissing book, but you can have kissing in a, in a non-kissing book. Yeah. And I wanted to really um, like <clears throat> all of the relationships in the book, well, most of the relationships in the book, the romantic relationships are fairly fluid, you know? Um, and, and that's how real life is. Like you can be interested in somebody and never have a romantic encounter with that person. Yep. Um, you can also have uh, a romantic twinge for somebody of the same gender, even if you're straight, like yep. things like we aren't in control of how we feel. Um, and so I wanted to kind of address that in the book without hanging a lantern on it by saying, yeah, Paisley can feel how she wants to about anybody she wants to. Um, there's, there's no restrictions on who she's allowed to be attracted to. Um, there's a point where she's talking to Boyd Gunnerson and Boyd is clearly, you know, finds her attractive, but she, she has a little attraction to Boyd too. And that doesn't seem like a character that she would normally be attracted to. Um, and then there's the point where she says, is everybody in this town a fucking supermodel? Um, because yeah, like she, she notices good looks. And I think yeah. it's important to address that, but I also don't think it needs to be the center point of the book, but when addressed, I feel like it needs to be addressed well. And so there's the, the, the sexy scene, um, leading up to it is, you know, orchestrated by a person who clearly is good at orchestrating these types of things. And so I felt I needed to put some attention into that. So if that's, I'm assuming that's the sexy part you're talking about, um, then no, then no, I, really... I mean, yes, but also like there is just that the, the sexual tension that no. kind of goes throughout the book, but then also, yeah, just her her noticing different people mm -hmm. and noticing different body parts or how they carry themselves or, mm -hmm. or, you know, those sorts of things. And she has those thoughts, but she's not jonesing to get into everybody's pants. And so there, like I said, there's just this, this sexiness and, and it's very human. Thank you. Thank you. There, um, the lady that told me I couldn't write women, um, pointed out the line, um, Paisley says when speaking of Hyacinth, Hyacinth says, um, Paisley thinks to herself that Hyacinth has all the curves where a woman wants them. It was very specific, like where a woman wants them, not because of a man, right. but where a woman has them that she feels good about. I didn't say what curves those were because it's different for every person. Yes. And so it was important for me to say where a woman wants them because Paisley's the one with that thought. Um, and it's not about, you know, the male gaze. It's about feeling empowered. And pa yeah. in that moment in the book, that's what Paisley sees. Paisley sees this strong, beautiful woman. Um, and that's what she admires about her. Not that this woman is going to attract men, but that this woman feels good about who she is. Yeah. And I also, I appreciated how I, I feel that the way that you wrote Paisley and how she dealt with these things was healthy. Um, but you also clearly showed the more toxic masculinity aspect of yes. it with Courtney, because mm -hmm. he's just, he's, he's the exact opposite of, of what, He's the thing that we should all be avoiding. Yes, yes. And and that that is, from the moment you meet him, it is clear. Yeah, 
he's he's despicable and putting him in the book was actually difficult because i was just like i don't i, I don't want people to have to see this type of thing but because paisley and hyacinth are both social media um celebrities yeah uh, for a lack of a better term that's what like that's the the far end of the spectrum of what they have what women have to deal with on a daily basis yes like having two daughters and and being friends the majority of my friends are women and the things that they tell me people tell them say to them online are just like disgusting and the fact that they have to deal with this and so i wanted to personify that in Courtney and show like, this is the danger that women have to put themselves in just to have an audience, just to feel good about what they're doing. They have to accept this really shitty uh, male gaze that can oftentimes manifest in these incel types. They just think that they have ownership because, you know, well, clearly the woman wants to look good for me. And so that if she's not giving me attention, then there's something wrong with her. And Courtney personifies that, and it's just disgusting. Yeah, I I appreciated that you wrote that, and we're so clear and upfront about it. And you did it in a way that it, you 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 clearly weren't glorifying it, but you put it out there. And I I remember one one part in particular when you you were writing from Courtney's perspective, and I heard it, and I was just like, ugh, it's and gross. Instantly, as a writer, my thought was, damn, Calvin. Like you put that, you wrote that, you put it in there. Because for me, if I was writing that, my first thought would be, someone's going to read this and think this is how I think. And I would second guess myself and be scared to be honest about it. And so the fact that you did that, you know, I... I felt as a as an author, it's empowering that no, this is the the character, and this yes. is how he is, and this is how it needs to be written. Yeah, and that's so. Thank you for for noticing that because I there was a huge internal struggle with me when writing that scene or those all of Courtney's scenes yeah. to like how do I make sure that the the audience knows that this is the character with these thoughts and not me. I yeah. I don't agree with a single thing that Courtney does, not yeah. one. Yeah. Um. But then I thought. I'm not Paisley either. I'm not a young woman and I'm not a black man. I'm not Grover Northfield. I'm not a preacher. So I'm not Hollis Grimm. And so I'm not these people. And so I write their point of view. And so it's only fair to be honest about who the character is. And so I wanted to make sure that the voice of each character was so clear that it was obvious that it was the character saying those things and not me. Um, Because if you just pulled one of Courtney's um, chapters and read it, people would be like, whoever wrote that is disgusting and should probably be you know, dragged out into the street and beat. And I agree with that. Um, but from the context of who Courtney is, um, it is very accurate. And every line that Courtney has and everything that Courtney does is something, well, outside of, you know, the extremes are things that I've seen. Um, he, there's a moment where he talks about his, um, the name of his guild in his video game. And that is actually the name of a guild that I saw and I reported and got shut down. Uh, on a a server because I just, you know, it was disgusting. Uh, And so it's, there's a whole lot of truth in that. And I've had um, women from uh, IG and YouTube reach out and say, this feels very accurate and it's terrifying. It adds a whole nother layer of horror to the book because these are the things that we deal with. And we're wondering, is this the type of person that's on the other end of the screen? Mm. Wow. Yeah, you, you did a great job. And and to to the different character voices, 
you you captured it. You know, listening sometimes it can be confusing in an audiobook, yeah. especially when the chapter headings are just chapter whatever, not yeah. Courtney. Paisley. Right. This is the point of view from the person. Yeah. Yeah. But it was clear. You know, I didn't I didn't struggle with it. Um, so bravo on that front. Um, another thing that I want to mention is that for me personally, I am a very big fan of religious horror. Mm -hmm. And um, for, for instance, Midnight Mass, I, I oh, love yeah. it. I love it. And I know that a lot of people have take issue with some of the long monologues. Sure. For me, I thought it was great. I thought that it, it added to the story and it showed the, the different... Um, the the different theological implications that the characters were wrestling with whether it was you know a a, a a pastor preaching a sermon or whether it was two individuals talking from you know different sides of a religious perspective um i i really like that kind of stuff and i i applaud mike uh flanagan for actually writing the story in a way that it wasn't just um taking religious horror and using it as a badge to get people right. in because yes. i think that a lot of the quote-unquote religious horror that has come out as of late um fails it's not religious horror it is a horror story and they threw a cross in this scene and put a pastor right. in this one scene and call it religious horror yeah. and i think that's bullshit mm -hmm. um uh, it's just like what they do with cult horror they just say oh these people drew a pentagram on the ground so they're a cult and so this yes. is cult horror yeah exactly yeah. And I just, I don't like that type of false advertising. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of The Exorcist. That is one of my top five uh, novels uh, that I've ever read. And the movie is fantastic as well. And I actually just earlier this week, um, or last week, I finished Spencer Hamilton's newest novella, Sister Fun Time. Mm -hmm. And um, as he was writing that and going through the process, he was sort of sending me snippets and he knows where I stand when it comes to religious horror. And so I was um, very pleased to see that he didn't just tack that on there as well, right. that this is truly religious horror. But all that said, when I went into your novel, I didn't get any hints that this was going to have any religious horror elements but right. damn man like you you captured so much and for somebody that was raised um in in christianity and in in the south and in these church environments like you really captured a lot of of the the mixed emotions that tend to come with being raised in that sort of environment both the good and the mm -hmm. bad both the nostalgia and the trauma and you really picked up on that and so i i don't have an issue saying that this is a religious horror novel um, and so, you know, that's just, that's another reason why I loved this book and I wasn't expecting it. And so it was a pleasant <laughs> surprise. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. I, I, I did think about like selling that aspect of it a little more and on the, um, on the, I don't know if I have one sitting around here. I've got a box full of them, but, um, on the, the cover, you know, it's, you got Paisley in the camera on the paperback and the hardcover, um, you flip it over and there's the church. And so that's kind of how I approached the story itself was it's not on front street, but at the, at the, at the bottom of it, there's this important piece that we're overlooking. Um, and to your, to your point, um, every 
time Hollis speaks about the Bible, those are actual Bible verses. Like yes. I didn't change them at all. Yeah. They're verbatim from the Bible. And that's kind of the idea of what we're, what I was going for is I want the truth to be there. And because with religion, the truth is whatever you make it. Like you can kind of, uh, you know, I, I once told somebody, I, I used to be a youth minister myself for a short time um, doing youth groups and stuff. And um, I, I stopped doing it because I told myself the most dangerous thing in the world is a smart person with a Bible. Like, because you can convince anybody of anything yep. if you can find a way to make it fit. And so that was kind of, I wanted to make sure that everything that happened in there was, was realistic and felt um, there. There's points where people call Hollis a preacher. They call him Reverend and they call him pastor. They call all three different ones, which are different sects of uh, basically this, you know, uh, Christianity. And somebody complained, somebody from, uh, you know, uh, England complained and said, um, I went to, to a Christian school and you would never call them both. But if you live in the Appalachian South, you only have one church. And so doesn't matter what denomination you are, that's your church. And so yeah. you will call them whatever you're comfortable calling them. And so I, I got really hurt when that person reached out and said, this is inaccurate. But then somebody that grew up in the town that Greywater is based off of said, this is felt like I was back home because that's what we do. One person will call him this and another person will call him that because that's how religion works when it's so sparse. You just make it fit what you need it to be. And that's kind of what the book is about. Yeah, you you did a really good job with it. And, um, you know, I picked up I picked up on the the Bible verses and and recognize them. And it's the same with Midnight Mass. You know, I mean, large swaths of scripture are referenced yeah. in there so well. Um, yeah. And it's done so well in the preacher. Like you, like I was able to pick up fairly quickly that like this guy is leading his congregation towards yes. something yeah. and the verses that he is using and the way in which he's adding his commentary. Uh -huh. um, it's once again, it's touching on the fact that you, you what, what you mentioned that a smart person um, with, with a Bible or any religious text, sure. um, depending on who he's talking to um, can be it, with ulterior motives can be a very, mm. very dangerous person. You know, we, we saw it with Jim Jones. We saw it with David Koresh, mm. um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's scary stuff. And so you, you touched on that in this book and I, I noticed it ramping up. Um, and, and so, yeah, really, really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, if, if I'm talking about things I'm proud of with the book, Paisley's obviously uh, Paisley and the character work is probably my, the most proud, but the religious stuff I really, I really love. Let's start winding this down a little bit. Um, all right. I want to take you to the carpenter's shed. All right. And everybody that I have on here, they get to go. And I, I simply want to ask you because I am an 80s horror nerd and I'm a big John Carpenter fan. I don't know if you saw my my story that I posted on IG yesterday, but mm -hmm. I I am in in rarefied air in that there is only 0.005% of all of Spotify that, that, that listens audience, to as much that yeah. listens to John Carpenter as much as me, which is, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, like you said, rarefied air. <laughs> so what, what is your favorite John Carpenter movie? Um, probably the thing. I get that and, a lot. <laughs> I, right. And I, I, I thought about it and I was like, man, come up with something better, come up with something different. Like, 
but the first time seeing the thing um was like i don't know it was this transformative thing that mixed all of these different types of horror into one thing we had the the isolation aspect and the monster aspect like also done very well with alien but like something about the way the thing did because in alien you know the alien if you see the alien that's the alien but in the thing it took that away so it made a monster movie without a monster uh and it was just brilliant brilliantly done um the writing is great kurt russell's amazing in it like yes. just everything about the movie i just loved as a child and i still love as an adult yeah yeah well you're you know you're not the only one that has said this we've talked yeah, at length I, I really about all did the... want to find like some like meta reason for picking something else but it's <laughs> you like what hard. you like yeah that's it that's it <laughs> it didn't really come out straightforward so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with how i normally do this but allow me to take you by the hand and lead you into the king's corner okay and i want to ask you what is your favorite king book and also what is your least favorite king book um so it is probably my favorite king book just because of the close connection that i have with it um i, I read it usually usually once probably once a year i'll try wow. to read it um but that's just so hard because it just depends on like i have difference for for different things you know like um just like with food you have a, a different craving all the time so it's hard to pick one favorite food because one food's not going to just hit hit the same way every time but um i also love dark the entire dark tower series is probably my favorite series of books and it's hard not to just call that my favorite um uh but then there's like the sleeper of bag of bones which i don't think many people put on their favorites but the the character work and the depth of the story outside of the paranormal stuff and outside of the the evil person um is just a beautiful story about yes. this man trying to take care of people that he shouldn't have to take care of um but if i had to pick one it would probably be it all right no no what what is your least, least favorite king book <sighs> And it doesn't mean you think it's a bad book, but sure, it maybe just sure. didn't uh, didn't it, resonate. It, yeah. Um, maybe desperation. Um. Yeah, maybe uh, Langolier. I don't know. Let's go desperation. We'll go desperation. Okay. Maybe regular. I don't know. That's hard. Have you read every Stephen King book? Every I've read every everything that's available that he's published. I've read. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Like I I've spent years searching like short stories that were published and you know um i was on this forum for a long a reddit forum where people would be like oh i have this magazine article uh that he wrote and they would scan it in and send it to people if they requested it and so i spent a lot of time going around and like finding just random things that he wrote just because i love the um you know watching his evolution and in some places where he didn't evolve you know like he started writing for men's magazines well he started writing and then he realized men's magazines were the things paying and so that's when he got this kind of gross thing like love stephen king but the way he writes women is sometimes a little gross and he mentions women's breasts all the time like yeah. without fail it's going to be there it's going to show up and that comes from having to write for men's magazines early on to find any sort of success and so it's been interesting finding all those things and you know 
things that aren't really publicized and reading those and saying, oh, I can see this is before he started writing this type of thing. And this is before he started writing this type of thing. And you can find them that aren't dated and then be able to figure out based on his writing style where that thing exists in his pantheon of, of uh, literature. I haven't read all of his stuff. I've probably got about, I don't know, 15 books that I need to read. Desperation's one of them that I haven't read. I also haven't read the Dark Tower series. I've read the first four. Um, But you are in for something. Yeah, no, I've heard. Huge tone change where you're at right now. I've uh, heard. It's because he almost got killed writing it and then not, you know, that's not why he was almost killed, but it definitely changes the... uh, the feel but i will say though that i am a connoisseur of his interviews and live appearances whether he's talking at a library or at a school Mm -hmm. um those types of things i have spent hours upon hours upon hours on youtube watching those and i really really enjoy those i'm I'm a big nonfiction fan as well And um, so I and I think that he's just he's a really good speaker. And once again, talking about his voice, the voice comes out when he's talking as well. Mm -hmm. For sure. I, I normally wrap up these episodes with asking the, you know, my my interviewee to recommend three horror books or movies that are sort of connected with the topic um but we're talking about stephen king Uh, Mm -hmm. that is that that is the topic and i I mean obviously i feel like if i ask you what books to recommend you'd probably take your your favorite three um so i want to do things a little bit differently all right if somebody came to you and they were maybe a a fan of romance and they hadn't read any Stephen King. Okay. What, what book would you recommend to that person? Romance. Um, great question. Uh, romance. They loved romance and wanted to, uh, maybe bag of bones because there's a romance story in there that is just absolutely beautiful. Um, that's what I wanted you, also, you to say. Yeah. It's just, I mean, then <clears throat> I think that's one of the reasons I love it so much is because there's so much heart in that book. Um, it is just all heart uh, and tragedy, but heart. Um, yeah, maybe that one or even Dark Tower because the romance in Dark Tower is just beautiful as well. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe Lisey's story because there's a the romance there is, uh, I mean, it's, it's past, but um, yeah, there's just, he's really good at writing character connection. Not always romance, but sometimes character connection. Yeah. But if I had to pick one, probably bag of bones okay what about if somebody was a big fan of mainstream thrillers what stephen king book would you recommend to this mainstream thrillers huh like what what kind of mainstream thriller are we talking here oh see you're putting me on the spot i don't read a lot of them okay Okay. my wife really (laughs) likes them and so a lot of times on road trips we'll listen to them and we actually we just listened to one on the way back um, from North Carolina. Let me look, let me pull up my Goodreads and I can tell you what it was called and who the author was. But for me, like I enjoy them, like Mm -hmm. I like them, 
but they all seem so similar. Yes. Um, it was called Tell Me Lies by J.P. Pomer. Ah, so the, <clears throat> we're talking kind of like in the vein of um, that or like a Gillian Flynn type novel, yes. Gone Girl, Sharp Object, something like that. Okay, somebody that's into that kind of thing. Uh, I might go for like a um, Elise story or maybe even a Gerald's Game. Um, yeah, probably something, probably something in that vein that has that more that central focus of here's the thing that we're already dealing with. Uh, but now let's dig into why we're dealing with it. Yeah, yeah, I could see that, especially with Gerald's game. Um, I would also maybe say misery. Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. That should have been that should have been uh, top of the list. It's so balls to the wall. Yeah, it's just it's just suspenseful scene after suspenseful scene. Yeah, it's um, exhausting. Yes, not a ton of mystery, but enough uh, uh, suspense to just keep you turning that page. Yeah. Okay, so the the final one. What about if if there's a person who wants a feel good story? Feel good story <clears throat> from Stephen King. From Stephen King. <laughs> uh, I mean, you probably have to dig more into his short stories mm -hmm. for feel good. Um, that tends to be where he'll let that rest because it's easier to make a complete. Uh, story arc with a, uh, in shorter time if you give it a good ending um but if i was going that route feel good ending it's just not really his specialty <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's he even said you know he makes a joke i'm not great at endings so he just kills everybody and that's the ending um but there are, there are some pretty good feel good ones out there uh, i just had one for a second it was a short story um uh Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is a is a great feel-good story at the yeah. end of it um that might be his best feel-good story uh, a lot of pain and tragedy in it um Green Mile also um, yes also feel good very sad more sad yeah more sad but um also just the beauty of that character is feels good because knowing that there are people like that in the world and it's not necessarily the paranormal aspect of John Coffey that makes you uh, love him, but the fact of he just is who he is. And that is that makes you feel good throughout the book. Um, but yeah, if I had to pick two, probably those two uh, both take place in prison, but both are feel good stories. Let's put it in the darkest place possible and we'll still manage <laughs> to make it feel good. That's Stephen yeah. King for you. I would say maybe the body. Yeah, yeah. Or... It's crazy to say, but there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of nostalgia. There's a lot of feel good in it. There is, there is. Um, it's just, it's buried under so much death and trauma. Uh, yeah. 27 years of trauma. It's yeah. buried under. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the end, the end is pretty feel good. The ending, high ho silver. And yeah. 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 Well, Calvin, where. If, if people want to learn more about you, if people want to connect with you, where would be the best places for them to do so? Um, on my website, calvinellis.com is, has connections to all my links, uh, my social medias and everything. Um, I'm on Instagram probably more than any other social media, just because I have a, a great group of spooky friends that I love to check in with. I don't check in with them as much as I should, but, um, I'm there more than any other social media. So, um, and I do, 
try to check every single message I get um, and okay. try to respond to every single message I get. So if people want to chat, that's usually the easiest way to find me. All right. Well, Calvin Ellis, I appreciate you coming on and talking about the king of horror. And I'm once again, I'm looking forward to a book two in the Paisley Mott universe. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man, no problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a great talk. We hope this episode haunts your nightmares. It's been an honor to scare you. Be sure to subscribe and also follow Into the Gloom podcast on Instagram for news on upcoming offerings. Until we meet again, remember to leave a light on. Ha 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 